I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here, back where I belong, walking alongside the fields of East Anglia, United Kingdom, with my best dog friend, Rosie. How are you doing, Rosie? How have you been since our last podcast together? Yeah, I've just been stuck in England the whole time while you ponced around over the summer, went to France, went to festivals. Yes, indeed. Very lucky we are. Had a lovely summer and uh, went to Latitude Festival. I call it Latitude because everyone there is so middle class they just drink lattes. Latitude. Okay, calm down, class war dog. What did you get up to then, Rose? Oh, you know, I menaced a few rabbits. I got angry about Brexit, Boris Johnson being a dick anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and that Supreme Court judge uh, did a wee on the carpet in the spare room and spent a lot of time under the sofa. Oh yeah, well more or less the same as me then. Except I got in more trouble than you did for weeing on the carpet in the spare room. Anyway, you go off ahead and have a a fun time bouncing around in the fields, Rose. But I'm going to tell the listeners about podcast number 79, which features a sometimes silly, mildly offensive... And yes, I'm afraid, towards the end, scatological chat with the brilliant American humorist David Sedaris. I've been an admirer of David's since, uh, well, I suppose the turn of the century, when a friend of mine recommended his book, Me Talk Pretty, one day, said it was the funniest thing she'd read. Like most of his books, including his latest, Calypso, It's a collection of essays, basically, filled with hilarious and mordant anecdotes and observations about his own life, his friends and family. First time I've used the word mordant out loud, feeling quite smug. And David's writing is often extremely funny, but he certainly doesn't shy away from the melancholy and even tragic parts of life at times. David's fractious and very funny relationship with his father, Lou, has also featured in many of his books, and Calypso is no exception. Though now, with Lou in his 90s, there's a touching tenderness that's crept in when David writes about his dad. That's not to imply, however, that Sedaris has gone sentimental. No! His fascination and amusement with behaviour that's often considered weird, wrong or offensive is still very much in evidence, as you'll hear occasionally in our conversation which, incidentally, was recorded in London on a hot day back in early July of this year, 2018, in the week when many people started to believe that England might actually win the World Cup. Good old days, do you remember them? As well as talking about writing, which is what I've been trying to do for the last few months, so I was interested to talk to David about his process, we talked about severed eyeballs, dads, football, tumours colonoscopies. I also asked David about his hobby slash compulsion of picking up litter for up to eight hours a day in the country roads near where he currently lives in Sussex in the south of England with his artist boyfriend Hugh. As he describes in Calypso, 
David's obsessive commitment to cleaning up the countryside led to his local council naming a rubbish truck Pigpen Sedaris in his honour. And he was even invited to Buckingham Palace along with other public-spirited types to be congratulated by Her Royal Madge for his rubbish work. Oh, it's so great. You pick up all the rubbish on the side of the road. The people have left there in it. Chocolara, Lara, blind. data rubbish pick up in it. That's what the Queen said to David. I was very excited to meet David. Been trying to get him on the podcast for ages, and I kind of got to the point where I was convinced that he didn't want to come on because he thought I was a Wally. The truth was a little more prosaic. He just didn't know who I was and was busy. But as it turned out, we got on pretty well, I think. He liked the fact that we're a similar height, and that informed the beginning of our chat. I'll be back with a little bit more waffle at the end of the podcast, but right now, here we go. There's a certain amount of small man syndrome that comes through in your writing. You're aware of it, you're conscious of it. But I don't like being a small man. Well, I've grown to like it, as it were. I've shrunk to like it. But I didn't like it when I was younger. You know, I think the difference is if you're straight. Because if you're gay, there are all kinds of guys out there who want a small guy. Oh, okay. And so, But I met a woman, I was uh, at a book signing a couple of months ago, and this woman came up and said... She said, I so appreciate what you've written about suicide. And I said, oh, do you have a family member who committed suicide? She said, no, my son keeps threatening to. And I said, oh, is he mentally ill? And she said, no, he's short. He's 5'2". <laughs> and I thought, well, that's just ridiculous. I said, he needs to move to the Philippines. I mean, there are other options. You know, aside from killing yourself, move to Mexico. Move to the Philippines. Move to a place where people are short. And you'll be the average height. Problem solved. It's not that hard to learn Spanish. I think short people have a narrative that suggests, and it's reinforced by books you read occasionally. I'm thinking of some Malcolm Gladwell book where he talks about how tall CEOs are. And generally, Mm. people in power are tall. You know, it speaks to how simple human beings are that you see a big, tall person and you think, oh, okay, I'm going to do what they tell me. So short people sometimes have that inferiority and they just feel powerless in that way. And they think, oh, all these things are going to be denied to me because I'm just too small. No, and I've got to say, I never felt that way. It's funny when you're arguing with somebody and then they say, you little. And I think, wow, how long has that been in there? <laughs> when was the last time someone said, you little, uh, when they this, were arguing with you? I was signing you. books in London and I wrote something in this woman's book and she said, you horrible little man. No way. Yeah. With a smile on her face, though. No. Uh-uh. You horrible <laughs> little man. All I'd done was call her daughter a whore. I didn't come out with that. <laughs> that was one of my dad's favorite expressions. Horrible little man. I think it was maybe he had a, a sergeant in the war who used to call him a horrible little man. O-L-M. Horrible little man. 
You sign books for up to 11 hours. That's your record, though, right? Ten, I think 10 hours and 45 minutes is my record. Wow. So not quite 11 hours. And do you enjoy it while you're doing it? This is yeah. after shows you sit down and... Yeah. I don't ever look beyond the person in front of me. This woman came up a while ago. I want you to write. My son keeps trying to see you, but the tickets are only sold out. So I want you to write to Brian. I hope you see me before I die. And I said, hmm. I said, let me rephrase that. So I drew a tombstone <laughs> with Brian's name on it. And I said, to Brian, you are dead to me. And then she got all upset. I don't want that in my book. And I said, oh, come on. I said, it's much better. I don't want that in my book. So I covered it up with stickers. And I said, but I'm still not going to write what you want me to. And then she left in a huff and demanded her money back. No way. But see, I would have kept her until I liked her. But she didn't give me the opportunity. Because you just want to say, to you know, like sometimes I'll be signing books and someone will say, you drew a picture. I saw you draw a picture. I, I want a sticker too. And I want, and it's like, just don't try to control this. Yeah. You know, I'm professional. And what I come up with to write in your book, I guarantee you, is so much better <laughs> than what you're going to, except one time this kid came up and he said, I want you to write in my book to Blair, you were like a son to me. I said, of course, I'd be so happy to write that. It was such a good thing to write in somebody's book. Yeah. You, were, you were like a son to me. <laughs> Someone you've never met. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, seeing as we've mentioned your live shows, I was interested in the process of writing your books and to what extent you hone the material that goes into them in the course of doing live shows? Is it a bit the, like the way a, a comedian might do things so that you are working up material live and seeing what lands with an audience and then when you're happy with that, it goes into a book? It's exactly that way. So I just finished a tour. I went to 42 cities and I started with three new stories and then I would read them out loud and go back to the room and rewrite them, read them, rewrite them. And so everything in my book has been read in front of an audience at least 60 times. So by the time the book comes out, I am sick of it. The thought of reading any of those essays one more time. But I appreciate the opportunity to edit in front of an audience. I recently had to write this thing. I was on tour and this television show wanted me to write a three-minute essay. Mm -hmm. And... I had like maybe three days to do it. But I was so grateful because I wrote it right away, read it in front of a bookstore audience that night, rewrote it, read it in front of a bookstore audience the next night, rewrote it. So at least I had, because I hate having to publish something without having a chance to read it out loud. Like I have a story in The New Yorker this week and my editor, we were working on it last week and she said, maybe we cut this bit right here. And I said, that is the second biggest laugh in the whole story, and I'm not willing to part with it. And I'm glad I knew that, because I'd already read it out on stage like 30 times. And is that always the way you wrote? Did you uh, do that in the early days when you were first writing? Were you going and doing stuff in clubs? Uh, yeah, but when I was reading things in Chicago, I always took each assignment as an opportunity to write something new. So I would write something brand new and read it out loud and then 
rewrite it based on reaction, but I'd never read it again because I would want something new for the next. Because mm-hmm. I knew people when I lived in Chicago who would drag the same thing around and you think, oh my God, I've heard that. You're still doing that, yeah. Times. And it just seems when you're young, just to stack up the pages, that's what you want to do. Just you, I read somewhere yesterday, somebody was saying you've got like 2,000 pages worth of really awful material in you and you just need to get those out. But I've known other people who would take, when I moved to New York City, people who would take writing workshops and they would go to the writing workshop with something they wrote three writing workshops ago. Like they hadn't, they're dragging this piece around and it's like, uh, you know, the point is to learn from your mistakes, Mm -hmm. move on. But then do you ever have the opportunity to read back early pieces that maybe weren't read out so many times and think, wow, I wish I had. They could be a lot leaner. Or do you not feel Oh, like yeah. That? No, I feel that way all the time. Okay, right. Um, because your stuff now, there's nothing spare, really, is there? I mean, every line does a job. Well, I think, too, when you're reading something 60 times, you realize this line is not worth repeating. Uh-huh. You know, it's just not worth, it's not advancing anything. It's not getting me a laugh. It's not coloring anything in. That can really go. Whereas sometimes I think if you've never read it out loud and you have an editor, I just like to learn as much as I can on my own before giving it to an editor. Yeah. But see, like with comedy, it just seems to me, when I was on my book tour, they said no photos or videos, right? So then you start reading and then there's people videotaping you, right? I think it must be worse if you're doing comedy because maybe you're trying something and maybe it doesn't work or maybe you're telling jokes that do work like when when I go on YouTube and I look at comedians I'll listen to somebody say something and I'll say oh my god that's so funny and then I'll look at another video of them and they do it again yeah and I feel betrayed in a way uh-huh. right so I, that's what I object to like my shtick I don't want people recording my shtick and shtick advances throughout the course of a tour you know a theme might develop but that's the way I do it like a theme just develops like uh, toward the end of this tour that I was just on a woman came and told me about a friend of hers who has a pug and the pug had an operation on one of its eyes so it had a cone around its neck and it just would not shut up about the cone so she took the cone off to get some peace and quiet. And then the pug scratched at his eye with his back leg so hard that his eye popped out. Mate. And he ate it. Oh! (laughs) He ate his own eye, right? So this woman told me this story. So I wrote about it in my diary and then I read it the next night and somebody came up and said, that is so funny. She said, I'm a psychiatrist with the prison system. And we had a guy who was a meth addict and he dug both of his eyes out with a teaspoon. And he ate one. Shut up. He ate one, but he couldn't find the other. Okay. <laughs> Big problem when you dig both your eyes out with a teaspoon. And then... Just feeling around for it. And then somebody else came up and said that there was another person who dug one of his eyes out with a spoon because he thought there was a camera behind it. Right? I see a theme developing. Mm. So I'm going to... I'm starting this UK tour... And I'm going to read that every night, and I'm going to try to get more and more stories about people or animals, you know, digging out their eyes and or eating their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I'm sure I could Google eye popping out stories, yeah. but I don't want. I want to get it organic, and it, I want people telling me about it. It feels like a sort of classical motif, doesn't it? That's something that's probably popped up in Greek mythology a lot. And well, didn't Oedipus? Oedipus, he had other fish to fry, didn't he? Well, do we have an Oedipus complex? Is that it? But I don't think that that has anything to do with digging your eyes out. Did he dig his eyes out because he shagged his mum and killed his dad? I think so. And he just thought, ah, oh, there's only one thing to do now. <laughs> <laughs> I've done everything else. <laughs> You're very funny about your dad. You talk about doing a sold-out show in your hometown. And is that in Raleigh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we call that Raleigh in yeah. the UK, right? Yeah. In Raleigh, North Carolina. And your dad says, uh, yeah, well, I was waiting for you to walk out on stage and I counted 30 empty seats. And uh, you say, "That's this is him all over. The place accommodates more than 2,200 people. All he can see are the unoccupied chairs. That really made me laugh. And he does that every time. Every time he counts the empty seats and then tells me about it afterward. What kind of a person does that? (laughs) Well, what kind of person does that? If I said my show sold out, it sold out. I didn't even mention that it sold out. So then to say that to somebody. Yes. But you must know this. You know, you run into people. Let's say if things go well for you, you run into people and they'll say things like, oh, you know, I read that part of the first book, but in the second one, I couldn't even really even begin to get through it. <laughs> and it was somebody who you were friends with. And I just wouldn't say that. Like, if you asked me for my opinion about yeah. something, that's different. But if you didn't ask my opinion, why would I, you know, it would just be hurtful for me to... To say that to you, or so hurtful for me to say, oh, I invited a lot of people here with me, but none of them ever, none of them had any idea who you were. Yeah. <laughs> I just think, like, why would you say that to somebody? Isn't it their way of sort of keeping you in check? Because they think... Yeah, but they don't know me anymore. I feel like I'm perfectly in check, and I don't <laughs> need them to do that job for me. But maybe you loom large in their thoughts, and they imagine you having this brilliant life and being lauded and praised everywhere you go. And they think, well, I'm not going to do that because I know this guy of old. So I'm just going to take him down a peg and he'll understand. Yeah. And maybe that's what's happening with your dad as well, is it? Could be. Yeah. Him just sort of going, don't get too big for your boots. Well, no. <laughs> I think my father, the problem is that I'm not what he told me to be. Mm-hmm. If he had told me to be a writer then he'd be completely happy. What did he want you to be? Well, he just kept telling me I should get a job in computers. I needed to learn 
I mean, if he had pointed me in this direction, he could take some credit for it. It would be different, but... He was no, in... He was didn't. he IBM or... IBM. Yeah. But it's not like he wanted me to follow in his footsteps or be an engineer. I just don't think he... He just never liked me. You know what I mean? Like, I always felt like if he could have traded me in for another son, if they had like a son swap, I would have been gone. I wouldn't even made it the first grade. I would have been exchanged in a son swap. But I wouldn't have changed him in for anybody else because I feel like I'd, I'd rather have a father who says I counted 30 empty seats because I can write about that. And that's interesting to write about. And it's, you can't write about, I don't know, like perfectly lovely, nice people. It doesn't, nobody cares. Or it's not, there's no tension to it. So he just provided me with like, you know, a lifetime of really good material. Plus, he's there at the show. He's there at the show, I think, partly because he just wants attention for himself. <laughs> I had a similar sort of relationship with my dad, who was... Um, I used to do a TV show in the UK called The Adam and Joe Show with my best friend Joe. And we, at one point, got my dad involved as a, um, a kind of youth correspondent. And <laughs> we, uh, he was... He's not alive anymore. He died a few years ago, aged 92. So he was old. Oh, he wow. Was, he was a septuagenarian when we were on TV and we'd go to festivals with him and we'd film him jumping around in the mosh pit of a Foo Fighters gig, you know. But my wish was always... I always fantasised that one day we would sit down and we would bond and we would say all the things that we'd never said, but it never really happened. I also fantasised that he would see the value in the things that really mattered to me, pop music, pop culture in various forms. But he just thought even more, I think, by the end of it, that it was all, uh, you know, it's just worthless. You didn't watch the football the other day, did you? The penalty shootout? No, I've never watched a football match in my life. I don't think I have either. But my son is into football and as a bonding exercise of my own. But I think because I'm, you know, I'm having a bit of a midlife crisis thinking about my dad a lot and and then interested in reading about yours, etc. So that affects the way I am with my children now. I'm trying to manufacture these little moments which will signal to them in the future they can think back on them and think, oh, yeah, he did like me a bit because he did that thing and we watched the, we watched the football. So I said, let's watch the football. Who's, who's going to watch the football? I'll watch the football. And they know very well that I couldn't give a fuck about football. So it's like, I'm brilliant. What a brilliant dad. We're going to watch the football even though I fucking hate football. That's how great I am and that's how much I love you. So we sit down and we watch the football and I pick the best match I could have watched ever England v. Colombia. I knew enough to know that we had a reasonable chance of winning. Like they were lower in the world score table than we are or whatever. And um, I missed the first half. So I get there when it's 1-0 to us. And then in the last minute or two, Colombia get one in, which means that we have to go and do the penalty shootout. So it's really, really tense, you know. You can imagine the unbelievable pressure on a player in that situation. Yeah. It really boggles the mind. So, so I found myself totally invested in this 
from the point of view of the goalies and the and the players who had to score, it was electrifying. So by the end of it, I was just screaming, you know, and it was it was really a fantastic moment. And I suddenly thought, oh, I get it. I, 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 I'm I'm part of it now. I'm part of I understand what people get from this, you know, and I'm connected to all the other fans because I used to be ideologically opposed to football, I think. I always thought, well, that's something that the jocks like. I'm with the sensitive nerds and the art people, and we're opposed to them. <laughs> and um, Did you read Among the Thugs by Bill Buford? No, but I remember the book. He spent a couple of years hanging out with football hooligans. Yeah. And there's a, it's a nonfiction book, and there's a scene in the book where this drunk football fan pushes a cop down on the ground sits on top of him puts his mouth over the cop's eye sucks his eyeball out of his head and bites it off at the stem fucking hell yeah That's... I didn't know you could do that <laughs> it never occurred to me you could do that it's <laughs> another eye story for your uh... <laughs> <laughs> Except that's in someone else's book, but still worth a reference. But I wonder, like, when you say you wish that you could bond. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your dad had a vocabulary, at least for that. You know? No? Not emotionally. I think he found that all a bit embarrassing and a bit, a bit vulgar. And I think he <laughs> he certainly didn't like the modern trend for talking about one's feelings ad nauseam, you know. And actually, I was going to say to you that it's something that I felt like I identified in your writing was that you don't specifically talk about your feelings you talk about events and you describe things that happen and the way you feel about those things is implied sometimes but but often not you know and actually it, it ends up giving the reader something much richer I think is that a deliberate decision well I noticed I started keeping a diary 40 years ago yeah and I never, I had to go through all the, my diaries because I've been releasing an edited collection of them. And uh, I don't talk about my feelings. You know, I don't, I don't know, and I'm not interested when people talk about their feelings. Like, I'd rather hear a story. But if someone said, oh, my boss did this and it made me feel like I was not really valued and it made me feel like, I'm like, I'd rather hear what your boss said and what you said back then your feelings. I don't... Because, you know, sometimes you meet people and they just talk exclusively about their feelings. And I I don't like being around those people so much because I think it's kind of boring. So, I don't know, I'd rather describe the events and then have it implied through dialogue what it is that you feel than to waste time talking about feelings. If I tried to have that talk with my dad, when I see my dad, he says, how the hell are you? How's your hell? How the hell are you? How's your hell? <laughs> How's your health? How are you feeling? But he doesn't, he never developed a vocabulary. Yeah. Like if I were to say to him, like, it's fine that you didn't like me. I meet people who I don't like. But can you tell me, was there something I said or did? He He wouldn't be able to say to me, like, you know, you were born and... I mean, his father never liked him. You know, he didn't tell me that, but I mean... 
he won't refuse to talk about him and I've never heard him say like, oh, I remember one time we did this or that. So, you know, that's what he grew up with. So it's not, and I'm not, and again, I'm not saying this in a, I don't want anybody's pity. Sure. I, I just, I meet people I don't like and I meet children I don't like. I mean, it sounds harsh in today's world, you know, where you're supposed to, you know, it's all about self-esteem and it's all about... But, you know, it's sort of like hitting your kids. I mean, it was just normal to hit your kids when I was a child. I mean, you hit with things. You'd be hit with... My dad kept a big serving spoon next to his place at the table and I had to sit next to him. And if I said anything that made my sisters laugh, wham, he'd bring the spoon down on the top of my head. Oh, for and which would just make me laugh even harder because <laughs> it hurt, but the sound of it, and I would think too, it must have looked pretty funny, you know. And if you put your hand up to protect it, you get your knuckles, when that would be even worse. Yeah, man. But see again, it's abuse, David. Well, now it would be thought of as abuse. Well, it but is back then. You knew it. You know, it's probably happening next door mm. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel that you have to tiptoe a little bit more in a world where feelings take the lead? I mean, I don't have a job. And life for people with jobs is so very different now. You know, the things that... I mean, I talked to somebody yesterday who has a real job in an office and he told a woman he liked her hair and he got into trouble. Oh, really? Because it was calling undue attention to her hair. Okay. So... Maybe he said it really sarcastically. Well, he said, you know, the person got offended, but you're not allowed to argue with their sense of offense. Yes. You can't say to them, you're getting upset over nothing. You can't say that to people anymore. So it just made me think, I wouldn't survive five minutes in that world. <laughs> not at all, right? And anyway, I'm just so glad it's not my world. Yeah. I mean, it happens. You know, when you're on stage, people are going to be offended and people are going to be uh, I was reading something in the UK a couple of years ago and it was a story from the book um, it was an early draft of it but my sister Lisa was with my father in Raleigh and they were going to church for a meeting with the priest on a Sunday afternoon and this black man exposed himself himself to them and my father turned around so they could see it again right so I read it, and this white woman in the audience said, why did you have to say they were black, that he was black? And I said, well, it's 1968, Raleigh, North Carolina. For a black man to expose himself to a white woman meant more than, I'm not saying it's fair, but it, it would be punished more severely. Mm -hmm. you know? And so my father's reaction to turn around and see it again is even more surprising. Plus, I'm, I'm a writer, and I'm painting a picture, and I want you to see the world that I'm describing here. And then she said, well, when you're saying that somebody's black, you're saying everybody else is white. And I said, yeah, let's, well, let's operate from that assumption, you know, unless I tell you otherwise. But if I was a black writer and if I said a white woman came to the door, it's the same thing. It's the writer's universe. We're seeing the world from there, through their eyes. There's not, it's not racist. Yeah, but I suppose the yeah. argument is that in a you want to aspire to a kind of post-racial utopia and a person's race or colour should only be mentioned if it's absolutely germane to the right. point of the story, which, as you said, it, historically, 
it adds something But in that to case, it, it was. Yeah. So then afterwards, I was, during the q and was I'd just been to Buckingham Palace for this event. Uh, and I said, waiters were circulating with trays, silver trays. And I looked at this woman on the second row, and I said, some of them were black. Anyway, she stomped out of the theater, stomped out, like, just her feet were so heavy on the floor. And I just... <laughs> I don't know. I just thought she was being such a baby about it. What were you doing at Buckingham Palace? The Queen has a day when she invites do-gooders. And uh, so I was invited as a do-gooder to Buckingham Palace. Because of your racial insensitivity. And that and picking up rubbish. Picking up rubbish. I read an article in your local online newspaper. You live in Sussex. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I found a piece... What was the headline? Hang on. David Sedaris blames poor people for littering. Oh, no. (laughs) No. That was... I was invited to testify before the House of Commons Uh about litter. And it was me. And it was a woman who owns five McDonald's franchises. Okay. And the head of the tobacco manufacturers. And I got up there and I said, I'm nobody... You know, I'm just a lay person. I just pick up rubbish. All I know is what I find, you know. And, uh, you know, I find Red Bull cans more than anything, followed by Lucasade, right? And I find crisp packets, and I find this. this. I said for every one, there are, there's a Tesco, a Waitrose, and a Sainsbury, an equal distance away from me. For every one Waitrose bag, I find 10 Tesco bags. And so, and there was an MP there, and he tweeted, David Sedaris, just blamed the poor for litter. And I was just explaining what I found. And there was a transcript of that, but nobody bothered reading the transcript, right? It was just easier to go by this guy's tweet. And there was, it was the first time I'd ever been put through the machine that way, and there were articles everywhere, like, making me sound like a horrible snob. I'm just, like, my thing is, if you want to curb this problem, you've got to find out who's doing it and you've got to speak to them. To act like it's not... And I don't know who it is. That's kind of what's really interesting to me about it is that a lot of times if I say that person's going to litter, nope, that's not the person who litters. It's somebody else. I was on the train once and there was this guy drinking vodka mixed with some kind of juice or something. It came that way uh-huh. in, a, in a bottle. And I'm sitting next to him on the train and he finishes a bottle, he puts it at his feet, he finishes another bottle. Meanwhile, there's a table full of people across the aisle wearing suits, and they're having coffee and crisps and stuff. At the end of the journey, the guy who's drinking vodka collects both his bottles and takes them with him, and the people at the table leave everything behind. Um, I've seen a, you know, a woman in Kensington pick up after her dog and then throw the bag of dog shit into a bush. But anyway, I just said that. And it's true. For every one Waitrose bag, I find more, 10 Tesco bags. Like, why can't that just be true? Why does it have to be... That's something that's always puzzled me about the UK. Is... I remember the first time I heard Waitrose mentioned. It was uh, some people in... British people who were in Normandy. And I said, what's Waitrose? And the woman said, Waitrose is... Well... It's a cut above, okay? <laughs> and people act like Waitrose is 
I don't know, Fortnum & Mason or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm like, what is it, something like three cents more expensive than it would be? I don't. I just don't see the huge difference. The service but, is very good, David. But it's the same thing like in, in New York. If you say to someone in New York, where do you live? And you say, I live in Soho. They'll say, oh. Or if you say, I live on the Upper East Side, they'll say, oh, okay. But in London... If someone says, where do you live? And if you say, oh, I live in Kensington. Well, that's posh. As if you move there to make them feel bad. And it's like, why do you have to get this lip all the time? You know? It, I mean, and you hear it, the same thing. Like, oh, I bought this thing at Waitrose. Oh, well. It's like, oh, my God. You've got to be kidding me. It costs like, what, four cents more? And it's eight blocks closer to my house than Tesco? Like, What's a, what's a, why do you have to comment on it? I'm not rubbing your nose in anything. i just living my life, and it's four cents. Who was it that talked about the classless society? Was it David Cameron? I can't remember. But whoever it was, you just sort of thought, no. It's, no. It's, we're not there yet. <laughs> no. Uh, that's something you really, really notice here that's so different than... In the United States. You know, when in the United States you're just raised to believe that, okay, maybe you don't have anything today, but tomorrow that could all change. That's why all these people with nothing are happy that Donald Trump had these tax cuts for wealthy people because they're thinking, I could be wealthy next week, so I'll come in handy then. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter that they don't have anything now. They just... I mean, sometimes I like that optimism. I mean, I think it comes across as Pollyannaism often here. But there's something to be said for just not being like, you know, thinking life is crap all the time, you know. It's just something you notice when you, you know, when people say, oh, what's the difference between British audiences and American audiences? It's just this one of the things that I notice is that people seem more attuned to that here I mean there's something I wrote in my diary that I was flying from Hawaii to Portland, Oregon and I was in first class and this woman walked in on her way to coach and she said look at you she said seated up front lucky you it's a great spot for people watching and I said it could be but we don't really count you as people (laughs) and people British audiences are like nothing oh really (laughs) I mean clearly I wouldn't have said that if I meant it you know (laughs) and Hugh was horrified my boyfriend (laughs) Hugh was sitting next to me he was horrified but the woman laughed (laughs) What's the story you've got about the flight attendants getting their um, revenge when they come down the aisle with the rubbish? Oh, when the passengers are horrible, the flight attendants in America come down with the bag at the end and they say, you're trash, you're trash, your family's trash. (laughs) We're halfway through the podcast, I think it's going really great. The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, 
there's so much chemistry It's like a science lab of talking I'm interested in what you said Thank you! There's fun chat and there's deep chat It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking I don't live in the world that most people live in. and I've You're not on been, Twitter. No, I'm not on Twitter. I'm, I have a Facebook page, but I've never looked at it. Oh. But I know people get so mad when they want to hate on you and you don't have a platform to receive their hatred. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gosh, they get so mad. Right. And do you know, presumably you don't read stuff that's written about you? You don't seek it out? No, I don't read anything. I've never Googled myself. I don't read reviews. I don't read interviews that I give. Um, no, I just feel like it's none of my business. Mm -hmm. Because obviously people are very much invested in, in your life, you know, and you write about it. And, and they're trying to unpick to what degree you're being honest about the details of what goes on in your life and to what degree it's sort of hyperbole and license and uh it drives them nuts huh um, well i mean i mean i get so this is some people i'm not saying right that. but you know i've had people come up and say you didn't have you a woman didn't cut the tumor out of you and it's like well i have the scar and i have her number i mean if you want to ask her but of course she did like i wouldn't i don't know it just wouldn't occur to me to make that up um you know i mean so often People say no and just shut everything down. Like, so a woman comes up and says, I'll cut that tumor out of you. I don't say no. This was after a, a reading that you'd done, yeah. is that right? Yeah. I, I don't say no to that. I say yes to that. How is it that she knew you had a tumor? I talked about it on stage. I had this tumor and I wanted to feed it to a turtle. <laughs> and so I went to a surgeon and he said he could cut it out, but he wouldn't give it to me. It was against the law. So I was grousing about that on stage and this woman came up and she said, I'll do it. She said, I'm a doctor, I'm not a surgeon. But, you know, if I cut you open and it's more than I can handle, we'll just sew you back up and send you on your way. I said, great. I mean, if somebody comes up to me and they're drunk after a reading and they're like, you're going to come out with drink. No, I'm not going to do that. But if it's a situation where if somebody seems funny or interesting to me or... I'm going to say yes. And and again, so many people just say no. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I'm signing books and somebody comes up and says, oh, I have some cookies I made for you. And I say, oh, thank you so much. And then I put the cookies out. You know, I might have one or two. And then I put them on the signing table. And people say, I'm not going to eat those. They could be poison. And it's like, who would go through all that trouble? The poison stuff. Like, I'm so glad I don't think like them, you know? Yeah. Um, Why were you going to feed your tumor to a turtle? Well, I just always thought, you know, like if you had your tonsils out, your cat would want to eat your tonsils. Why would you waste them? <laughs> when you think about all the people who get like a leg amputated, and that just goes to waste when there are alligators out there, crocodiles, animals at the zoo be so happy to have a human leg. It's just wasteful. And so I had this tumor, and there are these turtles, these snapping turtles near our beach house in North Carolina, and I thought, hmm, I bet one of these turtles would like to eat my tumor. And he did. He was delighted. 
to have my tumor. Isn't a tumor, by definition, spoiled? Not to a snapping turtle. I mean, (laughs) this was a a fatty tumor, so it wasn't cancerous. But I bet you could... Eating a cancerous tumor is not going to give you cancer. You don't reckon? I mean, you do have to wonder what it would taste like. Like, when you know, when people have, like, a you have to big snowball-sized thing in their uterus, uh-huh. you know, that the doctors <laughs> take out, and they say, oh, it's harmless. I always wonder, what did it smell like? Did it smell like danger, or did it smell like I'd say there's a good chance else? it didn't smell good. But well, I spent a week at the medical examiner's office in Phoenix, and they, all these people, you know, it was it was performing autopsies on people all day, mm. and they'd cut somebody open, like gut them, and then the smell would arise, and and it it wasn't like they'd been dead for a long time, so that's what you were smelling. It was just the smell of organs, mm-hmm. and I won't say it stunk, but it had a smell like we're not used to, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it was a smell. It was a smell to me that said danger. Like, <laughs> get away from this. This could be really bad for you. Yeah. It's not um, when you cough things it, up sometimes. Well, but a turtle, you know, or an alligator, they just eat things whole. Like sure. a dog does too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to munch you. A dog would eat a tumor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would swallow it and then it'd be like, fuck, was that a tumor? <laughs> I heard you on another podcast, or it was a radio show, which involves rambling, with uh, hmm. Claire Balding. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you were doing some um, picking up of trash out there in Sussex. And you frame the fact that you spend a very large part of your day picking up litter as a symptom of OCD. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So you're not talking about OCD in the in the sort of colloquial way that some people do when they just like things neat and they say oh I'm, I'm a bit OCD well I mean my house is neat so I just moved out into the world in but general is, but is it a condition though is it a sort of diagnosed I think it's a condition, condition because sometimes I feel myself out of control okay. in a way that the times that I've had this things going on in the past it's that same feeling that I get like I don't have any control over it anymore it's, I can't, I can't, it's not that I don't want to stop, I literally, I cannot stop. Um, Is it uncomfortable talking about it? No, no, no. Okay. But I was out, I started going out again. Yes. Like, when I'm at home, I walk between 18 and 22 miles a day. With your Fitbit. Yeah. But now, I go out again after midnight, or sometimes Sometimes just after 11 o'clock, I'll go out. But there's a two-lane road a couple miles from my house. And it's filthy. 
But at night, there's not that much traffic on it, right? But there are places where there's no verge, right? So it's, and I'll be there, it'll be like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and and I'm on this road with no verge, and I'm kind of keeping my eyes out for cars coming, and I can go to one, and I, and then there's a gum wrapper there, and I see the gum wrapper and the cars coming, but I have to get that, I have to get the gum wrapper, and and one night the police stopped me and I was just flattened against a hedge and the police stopped and they said are you alright? and I said oh, I'm fine thank you and I was having to turn my head to look at them I'm fine they said do you really think this is the best time to be picking up rubbish? and I said actually it's the best time you know because there's no traffic and they said carry on <laughs> but, but I get this feeling sometimes Maybe it's what bipolar people feel when they're high and you're kind of soaring and it's like you're not in control anymore. Something else is in control. And I guess that's how I know that it's bigger than I am. It's more, I don't, I don't have, it's not anything I have control over. And a lot of people fly tip. And so now I'm like a complete detective and uh, I find bags, I open them, go through them. Like I found a, Someone had topped up his cell phone, so I called the police and I said, here's his number right there. And they said, well, we don't have any record of who he is unless he's ever called us. And I said, it doesn't matter. I said, you call this number and you tell him you have your eye on him. He said, that's a good idea. I'm like, really, seriously, I have to tell you this? Because when you grow up watching Sherlock Holmes and stuff, you think that the British are so good at solving crimes. Yeah. I got stopped by a cab driver uh, in the country a couple months ago and he said I've seen you out here for years picking up rubbish so I wanted to tell you this he said I had a woman in my cab a week ago and she said do you mind if I roll down the window I want to throw out this McDonald's bag <laughs> and he said you know I said I told her I'll, I'll throw you out if you do that and she said it gives somebody a job doesn't it and you hear that a lot give somebody a job like as if they should be congratulated for it. Right. And it's true. Like, people see me out there and maybe they think, oh, it gives that old crazy person a job. But, I mean, I could, I'd be out there walking anyway. I don't need to be... They're not doing me any favors. Right? And then I've had people come up and tell me that I'm paid by the council. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. The council pays you. I should know if the council pays me. They don't. You know, I mean, I feel like the council should say, you know what, let's just forget about your council tax. And you just keep that. But I'm not going to complain. I I mean, in a way, if I were being paid for it, then I would feel like I couldn't go on tour or something. I couldn't. But, you know, I was cleaning up in front of this woman's house one day. You'd think her house was abandoned. All the rubbish in front of her house. And then I tie off, the, and, she, and she comes out and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm cleaning up your front yard. Oh, thank goodness, I was going to call the council. I said, that's okay, I got it. And then I tie off the bag, and she said, you're not going to leave that here. And I said, yeah, I said, I'll call the council, I'll come pick it up tomorrow. No, you can't leave it in my yard. Now, she should have said to me, let me put it in my bin. That's what she should have said. And then I saw her a couple of years later, and I'm walking along. She said, oh, there's some rubbish over there. <laughs> I said, then pick it up. 
Um, I was thinking like traveling by plane as often as you do, you must be vulnerable to getting uh, colds and things like that. Or is that an urban myth that you're because of the uh, pressurized environment and the air conditioning in there? You're just it's just a bit. I don't know if it's pressurized environment and air conditioning. I think it's just being around people, Mm -hmm. you know, and touching things that they've touched. Do you come down with colds and flus and infections a lot? Yeah, but I was lucky on that last... I went to 42 cities and I didn't get sick at all this last trip. But there have been other tours where you just get that flat-out flu, Mm -hmm. you know. And I never canceled a show, ever. And I had a kidney stone one night and I get back to the hotel at 1 o'clock in the morning and wham. I've had them before, so I know what's going on. And it is a pain that doubles you over. It starts... It comes out of nowhere. It doesn't build up. It just begins. What is a kidney stone? I believe it's a bit of calcium that forms in your kidney. And then it dislodges. And that's a problem. And then it heads through your urinary tract. So you can sense it. And it starts in your back. And then it goes all the way through you. And it goes in through your balls. And it goes up through your penis. And every bit of the way, it causes unbearable pain. Right. So it wants to be pissed out. Yeah. It wants to be. So often what they want to do is give you an anti-inflammatory to open the path. A little right, bit okay, get it. you nice and relaxed. And I guess when it's awful, they have to cut it out of you. But so I'm in this horrible pain and I go down to the lobby and I'm staying in a shitty hotel. It's a Holiday Inn and there's not an elevator. So I have to walk down the stairs. Right. And I said to the woman at the desk, I said, can you calling him can you call a cab a taxi for me I have to go to the hospital and so she calls a cab company and they don't answer and then she says I think there's another one I can call and I'm like I mean a call the color is gone from my face and then she calls another one and they can only come for 45 minutes and she said I'll drive you to the hospital and so we get out to her car that's nice and it's filthy oh I've never in my life seen... I mean, it's the kind of car where you open it up and all these cans and cups fall out of it, you know, just from opening it up. But I... It was so sweet of her to give me a ride to the hospital, but I I thought I couldn't... As much pain as I was in, I couldn't shut off the judgment part of my brain for like, (laughs) oh my God, really? This is what your car looks like? You couldn't take... You know, an extra 10 minutes a week to clean it out. But he, but so I was in the hospital all night. And they released me at 7 o'clock in the morning. At 9 o'clock in the morning, I flew to my next city. And the kidney stone was still in me, but I was on these antifine. Anyway, I, even then, I went on stage. Have you ever had a... Uh, I had an MRI colonoscopy. Mm. Um, and I had to take strong uh, laxatives mm-hmm. the day before two mm-hmm. sachets and I thought oh I'll be fine with this I'm pretty well in control of things down there so I take my first sachet and I had to travel to London that night to be ready to go to the colonoscopy the oh, first thing the next morning yeah so I'm out in East Anglia in the afternoon the day before have my first sachet and an hour later there's a bit of a rumble in the jungle. And I'm thinking, that's fine. No problem. 
I'll pop to the loo in a minute or so. And then about 30 seconds later, it was just an explosion. It was code brown. And and the loo was right next door, you know, it was six, six steps away. I made it about three steps. I've never had that before. And so, you know, spent the rest of the hour kind of cleaning up. It was absolutely disastrous. And then I was terrified for the rest of the day. I was like, how am I going to get to London? I've got to go on the, I've got to cycle to the station. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. Get on the train. And, you know, I, that's what I had to do. There's no, I, I, I didn't have the option to drive. And so I, I waited as long as I could until things were a little bit more normal. Hadn't taken the second sachet yet. And so then I cycled to the station got on the train and by the time the train arrived I was in terrible trouble and just rushed straight for the lab which was one of those big ones with the circular sliding uh-huh, right. door that I never trust that someone right. can't get in there yeah and they're often out of order as well because of the mechanism um, but luckily it was okay I got in there I was like thank Christ it's not one of the times it's out of order so I uh, do what needs to be done feel very relieved and then I realised the flush is broken. Oh, my God. Luckily, the sink worked, so I was able to sort of just put a load of toilet paper down there and put some water over it and try and make the whole situation superficially acceptable. And then there's a knock on the door. Oh, no. <laughs> this is my worst nightmare you're yeah. talking about. And uh, so I steal myself, open the door. It's a young woman. And I just keep my head down and walk past her as quick as I can. You know, try not to hear or think about anything that's going to happen. And then make myself as small as I can in my seat for the rest of the journey. While groaning and rumbling persists from from my tummy. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do if there's a repeat of the Code Brown from earlier in the day? And I was thinking, I'm going to have to shit in my backpack. That would be the only option. Because I don't, if I had a plastic bag, I would shit in that, but I don't. It's going to have to be the backpack if it comes to that. Luckily, it didn't come to that. But it was really quite, and I'd never had that feeling before of, of just being out of control. And, and my dad was ill at the time. And I remember thinking, this is what, I guess this is a little bit what it's like being old. Um, and just being frightened in those situations. Uh, having to factor that in, you know. You know what? We should come up with a crap sack. And it's a knapsack that would be lined on the inside yeah. so you could also use it as a toilet and change the liner so you wouldn't have to throw the whole thing away. That's genius. Isn't that a really good idea? Yeah, that is. But wow. See, I had a colonoscopy a couple of years ago. So I had to take those laxatives. But see, what I would do, and it's I know it's expensive, but if I were you, the next time you have to have one, go to the United States because they give you Propofol which is a drug Michael Jackson was taking when he died and you wake up on a cloud of love you have no idea how long you are out so you're out for the colonoscopy you're out for the colonoscopy you wake up on a cloud of love right and somebody had told me you know they're going to make you fart and I said I can't I could not possibly do that in front of somebody but you're on a cloud of love and it's just the funniest thing in the world when they tell you to do it you're just so happy to do it and it's the funniest thing in the world and and you're just a ninny and it's the greatest drug ever 
God, it's good. Mm. Made everything worth it. Yeah. Everything that came before. You know, but yep. actually, if your results are bad, they should give you propofol too, and then say, "Oh, we found like huge cancerous tumors," and you'd be this so happy. It <laughs> means I get to spend more time with you. It's worth it. It's worth it. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com/buxton for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, Podcats. David Sedaris there. Wow, I'm so pleased to have finally met him and talked to him. It was really a thrill. And I hope that he might come back onto the podcast one day. I'd love it if he became one of the semi-regular guests on the podcast. And as I said at the beginning, Me Talk Pretty One Day, if you're not familiar with his stuff, is a good place to start. The actual book or the audio book, either one is pretty great. I think it's one of those situations where it's very nice to hear him actually reading it, performing it. But of course, if you ever got the chance to see him live, that would be an extra dimension to the whole thing as well, which would be well worth it, I'd imagine. And I must say, his latest book, Calypso, is one of my favourites of his as well. And I'm not just saying that because it just came out and I'm contractually obliged to do so. If it was a load of old bollocks, I would just gloss over it. So, hey, it's nice to be back doing the podcast. Uh, Quite a long break over the summer just because I've been trying to get some writing done. I'm also in the process of trying to get a book written and uh, taking some of David's advice and uh, reading stuff out live at small events here and there uh, to see what it sounds like. But boy, it takes ages. I mean, everything takes me ages. I move at a fairly glacial pace. And that's also why I suppose there aren't more podcasts plopping out on a, a more frequent basis. Most of the people that help me with this podcast are busy with their lives as well. They have jobs. So it's not as if we have a whole dedicated team churning these things out twice weekly, like some of the more well-known podcasters I could mention. Speaking of podcasts, I was reading a piece online by an American journalist the other day, which was 
announcing the death of podcasting, saying the bubble has burst, we've reached saturation point, there's too many podcasts, everybody, they've all got the same guests, they're all talking about the same thing. Well, yes and no. I still like listening to podcasts. You stay loyal to a few. I experiment with a lot, but I suppose I do keep coming back to the same ones over and over, which I do crap on about fairly frequently on this podcast. But here's a few ones that I haven't really mentioned before, which I found entertaining over the summer. Um, I liked the Leisure Society that I think Six Music puts out. Gemma Kearney interviewing artists about their passions she talks to Tracy Emin, uh, Kelly Deal from The Breeders. That's a really good one. I would love to talk to Kim or Kelly Deal. I just think they're so great. I just like hearing them talk. Grace Jones, that was a good one as well. Uh, she, gets, she has a really good conversation with Grace Jones. And uh, there's Jason from Sleaford Mods talking about... They, they're all just talking about specific passions that they have in their lives. Kelly Deal talks about knitting. Uh, Jason from Sleaford Mods talks about going to the gym, I think. Uh, But it's not just that, you know, it's putting those things in the context of their life and work and they're really nicely produced and put together. So I'd recommend those if you're, especially if you're a music fan, I guess they're mainly music artists on there. Uh, Jonathan Ross, He has a new podcast, although so far there's only one episode. Um, I don't know if he's going to do them regularly. I mean, he must be so busy. But he's always good. I think, you know, especially when he's talking about films, Jonathan. Uh, It's called I Like Films. And so far there's just the one episode with him talking to Spike Lee, talking about Black Klansman, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm keen to see it. Another podcast that I've been enjoying. Actually, I tried this one earlier in the year and uh, didn't go back to it for a while because I couldn't quite make up my mind about the host. I thought, I think he might be irritating me. I'm not sure. But that's often the case with getting used to a new podcast, breaking in a new cast. Some of you might be having that experience with this one. Maybe you haven't listened before and someone's told you to give it a go and you're trying to make up your mind. Hmm, well, the guest was interesting, but what do I think about this guy? Is he too annoying and smug or am I going to give him another chance? It takes a while to bed in sometimes. And that was the case with the Ezra Klein show for me. Ezra Klein, I think, is a New York Times journalist and American man. And... Uh, So this is the blurb for his podcast. The Ezra Klein Show gives you a chance to get inside the heads of the newsmakers and power players in politics and media. So it's, um, it's not like this podcast in that it's quite serious, but he's a very intelligent guy. And even though I would say that he's coming from a progressive left of center place politically, he is extremely open-minded, inquisitive, and talks to people who he doesn't necessarily agree with, but in a very interesting and uh, thoughtful way, as far as I'm concerned. And he's talking about, you know, all the big topics of the modern age, and boy, there's enough to choose from. What else? TV recommendations? Uh, I mean, I've just been watching the same sort of stuff as you guys probably. 
Bodyguard, Killing Eve, all that stuff. Better Call Saul. Boy, Better Call Saul is good though. Don't you think? I mean, it's just on fire at the moment. I watched one episode the other day, a few episodes back this was, so we're on season four now. And for those of you who aren't aware, this is a spin-off show from Breaking Bad, focusing on Bob Odenkirk's character, Jimmy McGill, a.k.a. Saul, a lawyer. And it's so good. So we're on season four and episode, what was it, episode seven, I think? which featured Jimmy and his girlfriend, Kim, in the process of growing apart for a while. And it was illustrated, first of all, with a, uh, a montage of what they were up to in their lives. It started out with them both brushing their teeth together, but it was rendered in split screen, symbolically, and then played out throughout the rest of the episode in in a similar way. Not split screen right the way through, but lots of little indications that they were growing apart. But it was so beautifully done. Like, the way I've described it, it sounds a bit clunky, but it wasn't. It was amazing. It was like the most perfect episode of television I've ever seen, I think. Everything about it, the music and all the performances in that show are spot on. But... um, Yeah, season four. So I think most people are probably on board with Better Call Saul. Oh, shit, Rosie! Rosie! Jeez, Rosie just fucking (laughs) ran into the road. Oh, man, she's okay. Thank goodness. Yeah, so, you know, so most people are probably uh, well aware of Better Call Saul. But uh, it's one of the worst things you can do these days, isn't it? Is be late to the party. You're late to the... Everyone knows about that. Oh, you idiot. That's been on for ages. Why have you only just found out about it now? Why are you talking about it now? That was years ago when everyone was supposed to be talking about that. You idiot. That's the voice in my head. People sometimes tweet at me as well. Sorry, late to the party with your podcast. Only just found out about it. I don't care. That's one of the nice things about podcasts. They sit around. The archive just sits there for, I don't know, as long as the internet lasts or until I'm involved in some sort of scandal which requires the redacting of my entire creative output. I don't care when you come to the party. It's nice to have you here whenever you decide to show up. So that's about it for this week, I think. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell, as ever, for his incredibly valuable support, helping me get in touch with guests and helping me figure out how to edit it and all that sort of stuff. And thanks as well to Matt Lamont for his help editing the conversation. Much appreciated as ever. Thanks, Matt. And thank you very much indeed for coming back or for joining the party for the first time. Hope we'll see you again. Until the next time, will you promise, please, to take very good care? You don't need to put your coat on, but just take a coat with you, because it might might get cold. It's warm today, but sometimes it's warm one day, and then it'll be freezing the next. You can't tell these days what's going to happen, so why not just take a coat? All right, I'll take a coat for you.
I love you.